Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. And uh, while you're turning there, again, college students, I want to remind you, the retreat is next weekend, October 22nd to 24th. Uh, We'll be out at Frontier Camp, and you can sign up online or out in the foyer today. Uh, Great opportunity to meet some other students, hear some teaching from the Word, and uh, in this way, some have even met their spouses. So uh, I'm not above using that as advertising. And uh, all right, speaking of spouses, let's move to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle And quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, as I uh, read this passage this past week, uh, I was thinking about the fact that uh, as it talks about husbands and wives, uh, much of this was stuff that I have had to learn and am still learning being married. I grew up, some of you who know me know, I grew up with two brothers. There were no uh, sisters in my life. And so I was not, uh, as you would say, in touch with my feminine side necessarily. Uh, It was a rough and tumble house. And uh, yet since I have gotten married and we've had kids, we have three kids and the oldest two are girls. And so any deficiencies that I may have had in this area have been more than overcome uh, because I, I've spent a, a great deal of time hosting tea parties, uh, watching uh, dance recitals, um, anything you can think of. And uh, as I was thinking about all of that, I was thinking, you know, right now, the thing that's really big in my house, and particularly with my oldest daughter, she's about six, is Little House on the Prairie. Uh, Some of you have perhaps read those books. She's read uh, virtually all the books. We've read them with her. She has watched some of the TV show. Uh, She had a Little House on the Prairie party. Uh, We have been to Laura Ingalls Wilder's house in Missouri. All right, so uh, Little House on the Prairie, I would match my knowledge against any man in this room on Little House on the Prairie. And uh, maybe that's a men's retreat activity. I don't know if Brad's in here, but we could think about doing something like that. Um, But uh, if you've seen the TV show, you know that uh, on the TV show, there is a couple, the Olsons, Harriet and Nels Olson. 
right? And uh, the Olsons don't have what you would describe as the best marriage, right? Uh, Harriet and Nels have some troubles. Harriet is a bit overbearing, a bit controlling. Uh, She manipulates and nags and criticizes her husband into getting her way. Nels, the man, he responds to all of this just by withdrawing. He tries to hide. He tries to just stay out of her way. Uh, His biggest weapon is just kind of muttering some things under his breath as she walks out of the room. And it's a rough marriage. And uh, as I watch it, I don't know anybody that watches that and says, that's the kind of marriage I want. I want to be like Harriet and Nels. No, we watch it and we say, I want to be like Pa and Ma, right? Like Charles and Caroline. They're kind to each other. They're sweet. He takes care of the family. She takes care of the family. They set a good example for their kids. All right, so as I watched the show, I started thinking about this passage and I thought, uh, what we really want is we want to have marriages that are kind, that are loving, and ultimately to reflect Jesus Christ. And yet all of us probably have friends or know of couples that their marriage is a lot more like Harriet and Nell's. It doesn't help that the culture we live in, this is pretty much how marriage is portrayed. It's a sort of a prison where the wife is portrayed as a nagging sort of harpy who insists on getting her way. And the husband, in most cases, is kind of an idiot. He can't find his toes in the bathtub type of guy. And that's the way that the culture portrays marriage. And I think often we take our cues from that. And the sad thing is that as we look around at our culture, unfortunately, in Christian marriages, we don't always see the kind of difference that we would hope to see in the marriages of those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Sadly, the statistics on divorce for Christian marriages are, are very similar to those for the rest of the world. And George Barna, in some comments on a recent survey he did on this, said this. He said, there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but are not particularly optimistic about that possibility. There is also evidence that many young people are moving toward embracing the idea of serial marriage, in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. And so often we have taken our cues on marriage from the culture around us. And so let me ask you, if you're married this morning, how would you say, honestly, how, how is it going? And, and I realize that often there are hurts and there are breaches of trust and there are problems that, humanly speaking, are very difficult, if not impossible sometimes, humanly speaking, to resolve. But as you think about how you're approaching your marriage, are you working to approach it with the attitude and the humility and the service of Jesus Christ? Now, I know some of you in here, you're not married this morning. You're single. You're hoping to get married someday, right? That's why you're going to come on the retreat, right? And so as you think about your future marriage, one of the challenges I want to give you this morning is this, to begin to realize that the success, the quality of your marriage is only partly determined by the person whom you will marry, although that's a critical part. But the success of your future marriage is also determined by the person that you are, It's also determined by the way in which you approach your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And do you approach your relationships with others in a spirit of self-sacrifice and humility and love? That's what we're going to look at as we get to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. 
Peter is writing in a context where marriage could be difficult because in the newness of the Christian faith, there were men and women who were trusting in Jesus Christ and often their spouse did not yet believe in Jesus Christ. So they in particular had to figure out how do I negotiate a marriage in which my partner does not believe the most important thing in all the universe and particularly in their context for women, which is why I think in this passage, the exhortations to women are a bit longer than they are to men. How do do I negotiate a marriage in which there are struggles spiritually? All right, but what Peter is going to say is regardless of how your spouse acts, most of the time, regardless of how your spouse acts, what you are called to do is to reflect the person of Jesus Christ and begin to look at marriage not as an opportunity primarily to make myself happy, to fulfill my needs, but to glorify God and to reflect Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of disclaimers as we start. Obviously, anytime you preach on a subject of marriage, you you find yourself looking back at your own marriage and your own life. So the reality is, I'm very aware, as you probably are, as we look at this, all of us have fallen short of the perfect standard. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at what the Scripture says and what is God's ideal. Second disclaimer is this. I know a lot of what I'm going to say this morning from this passage is going to be difficult and probably controversial. There's challenging things. And so I want to encourage you, if you have any questions or if this upsets anybody, uh, just know Brian Fisher would love to talk to you later on about this. Uh, He wasn't able to be here this morning, but wanted me to communicate that to you. All right. First Peter chapter three, he starts with uh, exhortations to the uh, women and then he's going to exhort the men. So we're going to start, he's going to start with for the women, verses one through six. And the commands he gives are submission and modesty. Beginning in verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of your wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. All right, so the first principle is this. Submission in marriage reflects Jesus Christ. Submission in marriage reflects Jesus Christ. Uh, I was watching a television show a number of years ago in which a husband and wife They came from church and they were debating over the passage that the preacher had expounded upon that day. And the passage was Ephesians 5, which is a similar passage talking about the subjection of wives to their husbands and the love of husbands for their wives. And as they talked, the wife said, I thought it was a great sermon talking about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, give yourself up for her, etc. And the, the husband said, you're skipping over this part where it said, wives submit to your husbands. And she said, well, I do skip that part. He said, why? And she said, because I think it's stupid, right? Now, as you, uh, as you look at a passage like this this morning, that may be your initial reaction. Maybe you think, what sort of caveman would write something like this, right? Submit to your husbands. And I think that reaction partly comes as a result of cultural pressure and cultural forces and sometimes even the removal we have from the writers of the New Testament because we immediately see this and we think, is he saying that women are inferior to men? Is he saying that inherently they're somehow less intelligent or less able? Well, no, that's not actually what Peter is saying. In fact, the Roman culture to which Peter was writing, that Roman culture did believe that women were inherently inferior, that they were more evil, that they were less intelligent. But what Peter says is that's not the case. And in fact, he says, in terms of our being, men and women in Jesus Christ are equal. In terms of being... Often in terms of capabilities, and I know that because of verse 7, he tells husbands, 
show her honor, what? As a fellow heir of the grace of life. He exalts the position of the wife in marriage to a fellow heir of the grace of life. But what Peter is saying here in this passage is that although men and women are not necessarily in terms of their very being unequal, God has established certain roles and he has established an authority structure in the home. Right? And the purpose of that authority structure ultimately is not to subjugate one party or another. The purpose of that authority structure is to reflect the humility and the service of Jesus Christ. Right? Now, ladies, stick with me for just a minute because I am going to talk to the men in a moment. Right? And what we're going to see is that for both partners in the marriage relationship, the goal is that as I sacrifice my rights, as I love or as I respect or as I serve or as I lead, my goal is to reflect Jesus Christ. Now remember, what's just preceded this passage in chapter 2 is a description of how Jesus Christ, under the authority that was over him, submitted. He didn't revile, he didn't lash back, he didn't take revenge, but instead, he demonstrated love and grace and compassion and humility. That's why we read Philippians 2 earlier. And what he says is, women, you have an unbelievable opportunity to demonstrate the humility and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ inferior to those earthly authorities to which he submitted? By no means. But his submission came out of a place of unbelievable security in knowing who he was, understanding who God was and his position before God. See, the insecure person is the person who feels that they need to take control all the time. The insecure person is the person who says, if I don't take control, things will not work out as I want them to. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to grasp at authority. The secure person in Jesus Christ says, if God has established an authority structure, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's in the government, I can submit to that authority structure knowing that my hope is in God. And he's going to talk about that in a moment in this passage. And so I think often the challenge all of us face under authority, whether you are under any authority at work, at home, whatever, is that you're afraid if I don't take control, then it's not going to work out the way I want it to work. Picture uh, that you are in the car, husbands and wives, you're in the car, and I've heard that some husbands and wives sometimes argue about things in the, in the car. Um, I, I've just heard. And so... Uh, Picture that you're in the car and and you're pulling up to a restaurant and uh, ladies, he begins to park and he parks in the wrong spot. And you know it's the wrong spot, right? It's the wrong spot because it's either too far from the door or it's next to a big truck, right? And so you say, sweetie, can't you see that there's a truck there? Just move the car. He goes, all right. So he pulls back. He begins to move the car, pulls into the second spot and you say, "Uh, sweetie, this spot, it's not close enough. Please, just, just move the car. What happens at that point? He says, why don't you just drive the car, right? I'll get out of the car. I'll come around. You drive the car. Or just tell me what spot. And you think, why is he so touchy? What? I don't get it. I was trying to help. I wanted us to get the right spot. Now, what's happened in that moment is that in a desire to help, perhaps even a desire to take control, What's happened is you've pushed him back and not allowed him the opportunity to fulfill perhaps his God-given role in this family. And that's a small example, right? It doesn't really matter in the scope of eternity where we park the car. But on a day-in, day-out basis, I think often the way this might look is that there are times where you, you weigh the importance of this issue. Maybe you think, can I hold my tongue? Can I find an appropriate time to gently, respectfully present my point of view? It's hard to do. 
and it's a challenge. But I think what you'll see happen is if you begin to try this, try it for a month, try it for six weeks, I think what you'll see often is your husband will begin to, to bloom, perhaps begin to feel confidence to lead as he senses that you're behind him. And to lead maybe in ways that you've yearned and hoped that he would. Now, he won't do it perfectly, and no, he won't make every decision you hope he makes. But I think often you may find the sort of harmony and love and, and respect between one another that you, you're desiring. If you want an excellent book about this, men and women, I'm going to recommend this. Uh, there's a book called Love and Respect by Emerson Egrix. I think that's how you say the last name. But he talks about this in great detail and ultimately says, husbands and wives, the ultimate goal is you reflect Jesus Christ in your marriage. So he says, submission in marriage reflects Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he talks about modesty, which is an interesting follow-up to this discussion of submission. He says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. All right, why does he talk about modesty here? Because what he's saying is, women, as you reflect Jesus Christ in your marriage, there's a couple of, I think, temptations that you may have. One is to try to take control in the home. The other is to say, you know, I'm not receiving the affirmation or the respect that I deserve at home, so I'm going to go outside the home and I'm going to seek that respect or affirmation. And the way that I'm going to do that is by dressing in a way that attracts attention from others. And this happened in the first century culture. Sometimes women would leave the home and they would dress in a way that communicated, uh, even though I'm married, maybe I'm still available. And didn't always communicate that what I want people to see is the character of Jesus Christ within me. And so the question from this part of the passage would be, do the things that you choose to wear, the ways that you choose to adorn yourself, do they allow people to see the inner person of the heart is the primary thing that people are able to focus on the character of Jesus Christ, or is it primarily that you're focusing on receiving affirmation, receiving affection through how you look? College girls in particular, I know this is often a challenge. And often the challenge is, look, I I want people to to notice me. I want to look attractive. The question is, what is the balance between attractiveness versus modesty? Wives as well, you want to honor your husband. A couple of years ago, I asked some college guys and girls to fill out a survey on this issue of modesty when I looked at this passage. And in particular, ladies, you may be surprised by some of the things that they said on this area of modesty. And again, remember, I'm going to talk to the men in just just a moment as well. But here's some of the things these guys said. I, I asked, on a scale of one to 10, how much are you affected by what the women around you are wearing? One guy writes, if it is immodest, I will have to try very hard to focus my eyes elsewhere, even though I don't want to see anything because I know it's wrong. It's hard to focus on conversation because I will be focusing on not looking at immodest clothing. One guy writes, if a girl is wearing something revealing, I notice it quickly and then spend the next few minutes in a sort of struggle to not look back at her. If she is consistently in my view, it can be pretty distracting for the whole time because I'm having to focus a lot of energy into not looking. Have you ever tried to not look? Don't look, right? I asked them, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much does a woman's clothing affect your perception of her character? Right or wrong, here's what these guys wrote. This one guy says, I don't assume the woman is impure or doesn't desire purity, but revealing clothing gives me the perception that the woman is not spiritually mature because she doesn't understand the effects her body can have on a man. 
One guy says, I would say the way a person dresses reflects the person. While a person often cannot change how they look physically, I mean their face, body, etc., every day one deliberately chooses what to wear. And then lastly, I asked, what, what is one thing you would want to communicate to the women you know about the subject of modesty? One guy writes, unless you are my wife and we are at home, please wear lots of clothes. Uh, <laughs> if there is a doubt, put a sweater on. All right. One guy wrote, respect guys by not inviting them into sexual temptation with the way you dress. Allow a man to be above reproach in his thoughts when he is with you. He will be thankful for it and respect your modesty. And then this last guy I felt like really was insightful. He says, your modesty or lack thereof attracts some guys and repels others. If you dress in a way that calls attention to your body, you will attract guys that are interested primarily in your body. But if you dress and act in a way that puts a beautiful heart on display, you will attract godly guys. As a guy who is looking for a Christ-like woman, nothing is more attractive to me than a girl who is confident enough to forego the attention she could get from her physical appearance and put her heart on display instead. When I see that, it tells me that she trusts God and finds her worth in Him. So the idea is, what is it that you're putting on display? This is both married women as well as single women. I asked some of the girls... uh, what advice would you give or guidelines would you give to determine whether your clothing is modest or inappropriate? Some of them gave very detailed guidelines. I'm not going to go into those this morning, but here's some general things they said. What would my parents think? What would my high school Bible study leaders think? How would this affect my boyfriend? Does this clothing option help protect men around me from dwelling on impure thoughts? One girl says, girls are all made differently though, and so it's helpful to have someone who knows what your dress standards are that you can ask how you look. If if you're married, perhaps that's your husband. Several girls mentioned college girls. Have somebody who knows you, who trusts you, whose standards you trust. Look at your closet and tell you, is this something I ought to wear in public or is this maybe just for other places at home? And what Peter says is when you begin to hope in God and trust in Him, then you don't feel the need to either take control, to dress in a way that's flashy or demonstrative, But instead, he says this, verses 5 and 6, holy women hope in God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, he's not literally saying, ladies, you need to call your husband master. Men, uh, it's at your own peril if you insist upon this. Uh, I would suggest that's not his point. His point is this. Sarah was able to see that her ultimate hope, her ultimate trust was in God. So if there's a problem with her husband, she can pray and trust in God. If there's a problem in her life and in her sense of security, she can trust in God and hope in Him. And by uh, submitting to the authority structure that God has put in place in the home. By dressing in a way that is modest, she demonstrates trust and hope in God and respect and love for her husband. And so ultimately, the point is this, that uh, women, we are called, all of us, to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And God, through these two means in marriage as well as in your life, has given you an opportunity to do that. What are you trusting in? Is it ultimately God to change the way things are in your life, in your home, in your marriage? Are you trusting in the way you can take control? Now we're going to move on to the men. All right, here we go. Verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. 
All right, one verse, but there's a lot packed into this one verse. All right, and, and men, it may be that you're in a marriage and you think, uh, I don't know how I would possibly live with this person in an understanding way. I have a hard time showing this person honor. A few years ago, I was in a bookstore and uh, on the counter as I walked up to pay, they had a little book and this was uh, what the book looked like. It was called Everything Men Know About Women. It says expanded and updated with groundbreaking new findings. So I picked it up and I flipped through it and it was totally blank. There was nothing inside, (laughs) right? Now, uh, that may be the way that you feel. You say, man, if I wrote it down, it would amount to nothing, I have no understanding. And yet what Peter is going to call us to do is to dig a little bit deeper than that. And to say that uh, for the sake of reflecting the character of Jesus Christ, even though it's hard, I'm going to work to understand and care for this person and honor her and elevate her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. All right. And so what he says is this, men, we're called to understanding and honor. We're going to talk briefly about both of those terms. He says, understanding reflects the kindness of of Jesus Christ. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. All right now typically uh, this word weaker in the original Greek language it's not necessarily just referring to general weakness it usually refers to physical weakness. All right but but it can also refer to uh, delicacy emotionally or spiritually and the idea is uh, God has created Whether we like it or not, God has created men and women differently with different ways of interacting, different capacities and different abilities in certain circumstances. And so he says, men, treat her as if she is like a fine piece of china and work hard to understand her. Those who are married will attest to the fact that often it's difficult to do. Uh, When I do a wedding, I often encourage the men to get a little notebook And write down the things that you learn about your wife because you'll forget them. You won't remember. And it's a proactive effort on your part to work to understand. There were many things about my own wife that I struggled to understand for the first several years. And there are still things I don't completely understand. Right? Uh, When it came time to give gifts, I was fine if you gave me a TV antenna if we needed one. Right? Or a shirt. Chainsaw, that'd actually be great. Something, something practical, right? Something that I could use. But what I found over the years is that Shannon wants things that are romantic. Uh, jewelry, a trip, a massage, pedicure. Now, if you gave me some of those things, I might like them, but ultimately, I can't use them. And so there was this difference. I had to learn that her needs and desires are different from mine. Why is it that we need uh, pillows on the sofas? I don't know, right, uh, to this day. But, but we have them there, okay? And the reason is because over time, I've learned I want to try to live with her in a way that meets her needs, in a way that is understanding. And so, men, the challenge is this. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Seek to meet her needs rather than your own. This goes back to that same principle of what did Jesus Christ do? He humbled himself. He became a man and humbled himself even to the point of death. So that we might have life. And in reflection of Jesus Christ, we're called to do the same for our wives. Some of you have heard this said, but I think most of us men, we'd say, given the opportunity, we would die for our wife. It's a lot harder to die to self, day in and day out. It's a lot harder to treat her kindly, again, like a fine piece of china. No numerous men that have told me, you know, I told a joke 
to my wife that I thought was funny, and it, it was funny when I told it at the office, but uh, she said it wasn't funny to her, right? Why? Because she's different, and she's delicate, and she's made that way. Some of you may or may not be familiar with Waterford Crystal. They make all kinds of wonderful crystal items that you can use for display, and they actually make crystal baseballs, believe it or not. Now, I see that, and I think, that's not a baseball, right? A baseball is something you throw around in the backyard. Well, you're not going to do that with a crystal one, right? You're not going to toss it and try to hit it with a bat. It's going to smash into little pieces, right? The idea is that your wife is, is made in such a way that you have an unbelievable amount of power over her with the things that you say, the way that you treat her, the way that you choose to interact with her. So do you speak to her kindly, gently? You come in and it's clear at the end of the day that she's upset on the verge of tears and perhaps frustrated. How do you respond? Not all of us always respond well, right? Do you respond with scorn or withdrawal? Do you respond by saying, I'm going to move toward and try toward her and try to understand, to seek her best? Understanding reflects the kindness of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, honor acknowledges her status in Christ. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Earlier, talked to the women on the subject of modesty, just dressing in such a way that she displays the character of Jesus Christ. My question is this, uh, men, do you respect and honor your wife and the women around you as a fellow heir of the grace of life? Or do you look at them in a way that says, you know, really, the way you look is more important than your character? And the reality is, some of us know that as modestly as the women around us dress, there are some of us in here, perhaps, that she could be wearing a burlap sack and we would still struggle with lust. And so the challenge is, can I honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life? And look at her in the way that God created. I actually asked some of the women, how do you feel about men commenting or looking at women in a lustful manner? Here's a couple of the things the girls said. I'm very affected by men looking at and talking about other women who are dressed immodestly, particularly if they are making comments about her body or her hotness. I want them to see beyond what is physical. I want them to look for a wife of noble character, like in Proverbs 31. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. One girl writes, I would rather a guy notice me for my inner beauty and talk about my character and personality and faith than focus on and talk about physical appearance. Ultimately, the the issue of honor even extends beyond that, though. Men, the way that you speak about your wife when you're in the home. Have you ever considered praising your wife for who she is in, in front of your kids, in front of your coworkers, in front of those around you, treating her consistently with honor? and building her up to allow her to become the woman that God has created her to be. If you go back and read Ephesians 5, it tells us that as we love our wives, we actually enable their sanctification, actually allow them to walk closer with Jesus Christ. And so honor allows us to acknowledge her status in Jesus Christ and build her up in that. And ultimately, uh, there's a sobering warning in this passage, and that is that our relationships affect our walk with God, particularly your relationship with your wife. The very last clause here in verse 7, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Verse 12 says something similar. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Husbands, what Peter is saying here is this. If you're struggling in your spiritual life, 
you pray and you sense that God isn't answering or that your prayers are hitting the ceiling, first place you need to look is to how you're treating your wife. Can't just go back to the room and pray more and more. Look first to how you're treating your wife. Because your relationship with her affects your walk with God. And if I treat her with dishonor, disrespect, and lack of love, I'm hindering my relationship with God. It says, if you want to live in that way where you disregard those around you and you treat them poorly, verse 12 says, I hide my eyes. God says, I'm not going to answer those prayers. Those prayers are hindered. So it opens us up to walk closely with God when we begin to treat our wives as we've been called to treat them. Ultimately, verses 8 through 12, he says that the takeaway for everyone is this, pursue unity and pursue forgiveness. Look again at verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, and this is the heart of the issue. Husbands, wives, even for those of you that are single, this is the heart of the issue. Are you going to live in such a way as you relate to others that you want to grasp at your own rights? I have a right for her to treat me a particular way. I have a right for him to ask these questions or treat me in a particular way. Or will you, in the example of Jesus Christ, sacrifice those rights and allow him to begin to transform you and then subsequently transform your spouse? And again, like I said earlier, I know that that, that for some, maybe this is an issue in which you feel you've already failed. And I know for some, there may be hurts and, and things that are so deep that humanly speaking, they're very difficult. But I'd say in the majority of cases in this room, it's an issue of probably both parties pulling back and saying, can, can I begin to love this person, respect this person, treat this person in the way of Jesus Christ without expecting anything in return? Can I reflect then Jesus Christ and pray and see what happens and see how he begins to transform our marriage, and ultimately transform my life. Now, I know there may be some in here that this reflection of Jesus Christ concept is new to you because you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And so if that's you in here, the thing that I would say as we close here is if that is you, then to really understand what God intends for marriage and really even to have a relationship with God at all, you need to understand that the only way to do that is to believe in Jesus Christ alone, that he can forgive your sins because of what he did on the cross. And if you do so, you'll not only have eternal life, but now you'll have the power through the Holy Spirit to have a marriage either now or in the future that glorifies him. For those who are believers in Jesus Christ, two questions as we close. If, if you are not married, are you developing habits now that will lead to a healthy marriage later? Are you seeking to practice the humility, the love of Jesus Christ? I would say if you are a fundamentally selfish person and you won't let that go, don't get married. Probably not a good idea. Are you beginning to develop habits of selflessness and self-sacrifice? If you are married, are you actively pursuing the character of Christ in your own marriage, even if it's hard, even if you don't see change? Can you begin to pursue the love and the acceptance and the service of Jesus Christ 
hoping in God, trusting that he's the one that brings change. He's the one that ultimately brings life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, these are sometimes difficult words to understand, but even more than that, they're difficult to apply. And I think sometimes we understand them all too well and uh, choose not to apply. So please help us through the power of your spirit. Father, I pray for the marriages in this room, that they would be strong, filled with the grace and love of Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are not yet married. Lord, I pray as they pursue marriage in the future, that they would do so with an attitude of, how can I glorify God in this relationship? Let us set aside our own needs and desires for the sake of you and your kingdom. Father, we love you, and we pray be with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.